Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Burned by Books, a podcast for writers and readers looking for a space to talk about the books we love and why they matter. And I'm your host, Chris Holmes. This week's episode marks the fifth since I began this experiment in a broader discussion of our shared love of books. Nothing has been so rewarding as getting to talk with the writers and readers about their lives with books. The guests have been amazing. This week's interview is particularly exciting for me. Kevin Wilson is the author of The Family Fang, Perfect Little World, and Nothing to See Here, my favorite novel of 2019. And if you're a listener to the podcast, you've already heard me give a rave recommendation. He's a writer that, to my mind, understands the ways in which we craft makeshift families from blood, kin, friends, and our beloveds, as well as anyone writing today. His writerly sympathies tend toward the loner, the eccentric, the fuck-up, and he has an endless well of compassion for society's leftovers and left-behinds. He is funny and brutal in his visions of American life, and even his optimistic endings are less than happy and sometimes leave a bitter taste in one's mouth. Interviewing Kevin was an example of the exception to the rule that you should never meet the author. As you'll soon hear, he is generous, honest, deeply read in the works of a vast variety of his contemporary peers and he speaks with reverence for his favorite authors and students. And he explains what fiction can do for the writer and the reader in the best of circumstances. I ended the interview grateful to know the man behind the books. I think you'll feel the same. After our interview, I have a special summer reading recommendation segment where I'll be offering literary pairings for the listeners who wrote in to the podcast social media with requests for certain genres or subject matters or twins to their favorite reads. Before we jump in, I want to ask a favor. If you have time and the inclination, I would love for you to consider posting a link to the podcast website 
or its iTunes or Spotify page. I would love it if more folks were able to get to hear Kevin Wilson's interview. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. And this is Burned by Books. Welcome back to Burned by Books. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome one of my favorite American authors, Kevin Wilson, to the podcast. Kevin is the author of three critically acclaimed novels, The Family Fang, Perfect Little World, and Nothing to See Here, as well as two stunner short story collections, Tunneling to the Center of the Earth and Baby, You're Gonna Be Mine, which Ann Patchett called hands down her favorite book of the year. Listeners to this podcast will have heard my rave review of Nothing to See Here and will know of my esteem for Kevin's work. But it's worth noting that Taffy Brodesser Ackner's review of Nothing to See Here in the Times book review borders on trance state ecstasy. She writes, Good Lord, I can't believe how good this book is. I know you're supposed to begin book reviews with subtlety and a nod to storytelling's past and the long literary tradition that the book has managed to hook itself into, but nothing to see here defies an entry like that because it's wholly original. It's also perfect. It gives me no pleasure to say this. The enjoyment of reading a perfect book was much mitigated by the fact that I am in the middle of writing a new novel and I believe agreeing to write this book review has set me back egregiously. Taffy might have taken some solace if Kevin's other works weren't equally as original and thoroughly beloved. There's not a dud in his library. And the tales of families in hilarious and awful crisis, at odds with the world's expectations for them, carry through like a single epic story of how young people make families from the base particles of hard living that exist around them, from novel to short story and back again. Kevin's impulse as a writer is toward compassion and empathy for the oddballs and throwaways of American society, which makes him both somewhat of a rarity and an example of what fiction does at its best. And in the vast diversity of places his narratives inhabit, mansion and shack, dorm room and seedy apartment, barbecue pit and psychology lab, he shines a light on the unlikely places in which joy might be found, against all odds. Kevin's characters are the odds beaters, and that story seems like a uniquely American one, and precisely the kind we need at this moment. Welcome to Burned by Books, Kevin Wilson. Oh, thanks for having me. No, it's such a pleasure to have you here. And it was um, such good fortune that soon after uh, reviewing your book on on the podcast that we were able to have you on. But I want to jump straight in um, to a question about one of the most surprising things, I think, for many people about your fiction, your extraordinary women protagonists. You write women and girls so beautifully, Lillian in Nothing to See Here, Izzy in Perfect Little World, Annie in Family Fang. I'll steer clear of words like authentic, as I'm not sure that word means anything at all. But if the best thing fiction can do is shock the reader with familiarity and difference, your women characters spark that response. 
What is the continued draw for you of women, of writing in women's voices and about women's lives? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been asked this a lot, and I still am not sure that I have a satisfactory answer for it. Um, I mean, one, it's nice to hear that that um, that those characters come off as real. Um, but, you know, as I interrogate it, like, which is what writing is for, for me to kind of interrogate why I do what I do, I think at the heart of it, um, it's comfortable for me. Um, it's something that, um, feels natural. Um, and, and part of it is because, um, one of the things about writing that I'm always a little nervous about is, um, being read as autobiographical, right? Mm-hmm. That's why I write mm-hmm. fiction and not memoir. I, I want that distance between myself and the story that I tell. And I think it might just be this cheap thing, but, um, if I can hide a piece of myself within, a character that's not me, um, I feel like I can get away with some stuff and, and avoid that uh, that worry of autobiography. And so I think that might be on some level while why I might gravitate towards female characters. Um, but I know that it's more than that because um, I know that the most important people in my life have been women, and and I've always tried to be attuned to their lives especially like trying to watch uh, the differences between their lives and mine. Um, And I think it's just tricky to write outside of yourself. Obviously, I think we're in a moment where uh, that's becoming more and more clear that that Mm -hmm. difficulty. Mm -hmm. But what I've always tried to figure out with any character that's not me is that if I can figure out desire, like if I can try to understand and make the reader believe that I know what the character wants Mm-hmm. then what I hope is that the reader will give me the benefit of the doubt when it doesn't always uh, 100% ring true, right? Like, Because uh, <laughs> I also write male characters that don't ring 100% true. And and part of that might just be because I write weird people who have <laughs> idiosyncratic actions. Um, so that's that's my thing is I may not get everything right, but if I can get you to believe that I know what that character wants, then I, I can I can work with it. And again, you know, just circling back is I'm just for some reason, you know, I'm comfortable in the point of view of a woman in my work. And and I think a lot of my short fiction, um, which is different from the novels, a lot of my short fiction is, is in the POV of young boys and. Mm-hmm. Uh, that moment where everything changes. And I think it's that same impulse that I can place a little bit of myself in it, hide myself in the narrative, but, but still have that distance. Well, you, you use the word comfort. And I would say that that even translates to something like the, uh, the on fire twins. I mean, that's Mm. such a, um, a unbelievable premise and conceit. And yet the what's clear is your comfort in it existing within the worlds of the characters that you draw. And so it becomes it, it isn't necessary for the reader to turn it into a trope. It can just be something that it's clear the author is comfortable with the I mean, the the characters aren't comfortable with the children on fire, (laughs) but it is not so outside the possibility of their world. And as you say, their wants and desires and needs that it couldn't just exist as fiction qua fiction. Right. And I was talking about a frame with this, like, I think having grown up like my the, the thing that I loved most to read as a kid was comic books and fairy tales. Right. And in both of those, what I loved about them, and this is maybe different than science fiction or fantasy, was that um, it's our world, right? That magic, that kind of interior logic of the magic, 
exists in the world that we live in. And that was really formative for me, right? Like if a man is flying, he's in New York though. So right. um, that get, that gave me that kind of idea of like, this is how I'm going to do magic in my work. It's, it's the real world. Um, but you can, you can put, you know, a fairy tale inside of it. I think that's what allow has allowed the kind of rushing back of, of genre fiction, but as mm-hmm. in the guise of, just this is magic that exists in our world and that that then you know as a kind of counter impulse allows us also to think about the weirdness of the very very regular and the everyday um and that that can kind of exist in this parallel where we are more likely to believe sometimes the magic um than we are the kind of the things that we might actually encounter as just the strangeness of being a human on the planet right now yeah i mean if you read george saunders stories from the early 2000s they were so wild then but they they seem pretty believable in our current situation. So, you know, all that magic and weirdness, um, I think that's just the world that we live in now. Yeah, I quite agree. Another thing that's, um, for me, such an appeal to to your work is the comedic aspect of it. And comedy and and literary fiction can be a a tricky business. And even in the most gifted hands, it can feel gimmicky or or worse, unfunny. And you've got a natural comic uh, impulse, and it shows itself in the moments of, especially of young people in peril. How did you figure out how to do comedy? And why is humor for you such a good pairing with precariousness and danger? Well, again, that's, that's really kind. And, and, you know, if I, if I think about like why I like comedy or how it's worked for me, I think it goes all the way back to when I was a child. And, and partly because just I've always been anxious and I've always struggled with my mental health and my family who loves me and I love them. We've always been a kind of, my parents and my sister, we were always kind of an isolated um, group. And so what we understood was that when we went out into the world and interacted, um, there was going to be that kind of tension of how do we navigate this? And for me, it was humor. It was a way to disarm the situation and help Mm -hmm. me navigate social situations. Um, And then humor too, because, you know, this is slightly complicated, but because of the darkness that is in my brain a lot, that's always kind of swirling. Um, humor is a way for me to kind of hide that, you know, that I can, um, I can lead with that humor and that disarms both the reader or the person that I'm with. Um, and, and that allows me to then do what I want to do with the story. And, and I think just, I was you know, sticking with childhood, I was just trained from an early age to use absurd humor to disarm people so that I could get around so that I could escape if I needed to. And then I learned over time how to make it sharp so that I could use it if I needed to, in order to let some of that darkness seep out. Um, you know, I, my family loved humor and, um, we were this, like I said, isolated little thing, but my parents let me watch Eddie Murphy when I was three. I remember watching <laughs> uh, Eddie Murphy uh, Delirious when I was oh, three. God. <laughs> and my parents had all of Richard Pryor's um, records and I would listen to them. And I was six years old and I would listen to uh, Pryor talking about like burning off his face, rebasing cocaine. And I was six and I had no idea what it meant, but it was helpful for my ears. Like I, I what I liked was listening to the rhythm of the speech, like, 
how long it took to set up the punchline. And then I would listen for the way he delivered the line that made the audience finally like erupt. And, and it was just like, it was an interesting way to study comedy, which is that you don't really know the context yet, but you're just listening to the rhythm and how they set up stories. And then as I got older, it was Seinfeld, my family, that's our favorite show. And and I loved one. It was nice because it was like a window into what I thought New York was and like how I thought adults lived. <laughs> and what was great about Seinfeld was like being like in seventh grade or eighth grade. Like I just thought all adults were like scheming on how to erase someone's answering machine and making up code words in case they, you know, like I was like, they're oh, not. This is what adulthood <laughs> is this is what like a sophisticated New Yorker does, and so that also kind of shaped my perception of the adult world, that humor and absurdity was like a necessary component. Boy, you must have been so disappointed the first time you visited New York City. (laughs) (laughs) No, it felt pretty absurd and weird. But, um, but I do think, you know, that those were the formative things for me. And the things that I loved was, was that, and you know, the people in Seinfeld are not particularly good people. Mm -hmm. And what I loved was the way the humor could soften that. Yeah, the the final episode, I I think, is the draw back the curtain and reveal what atrocious people they actually are. And it has been hidden by their their quick comic timing for the for the show. Um, I I remember my mom catching me with a bootleg copy of uh, an Eddie Murphy stand up routine um, on cassette tape that I listened to in my Walkman and being horrified that I that I had it but it seemed transgressive and um and just incredibly funny when I was that age I I re-listened to it and and found that it is um badly badly dated but at the time yeah but at the time it was really important to me there's a scene uh, that I'm thinking of in particular in which Lillian uh, in nothing to see here is asked to retrieve the fire twins um, from the house where they're staying and they're in the pool and she's absolutely savaged by them. It's, it's brutal. Um, she's punched and terribly bitten, um, but it's also riotously funny. And uh, I just think it's, it's really a sort of perfect beginning to their relationship, how painful and yet intimate, um, the kind of like biting is almost a kind of um, an intimacy that Lillian can't know yet, but will kind of translate itself in the future. Uh, wh- did you come up with that scene early on in the in the writing? Yeah, I knew the moment that they met that Lillian was going to think, oh, I've got this. I'm cool. Um, kids will do what I want and then they're going to bite her. And, sh- and there's that because there's that disconnect when um there's a moment when, uh, you know, the, the little girl has pulled her into the pool and is biting her and scratching her. And Lillian keeps saying, oh, I'm going to be your best friend. Like she's still trying to maintain <laughs> order or believe that she has control of the situation. And that was important for me right off the bat. I needed Lillian to know that that she has no clue. She, she, there's, there's no way that order and logic is going to work. Yeah, their lives have been been such chaos that that they don't even recognize order yet. But later on, she'll manage to institute ordering elements that will that will change that ability for them to to love her. Right. Um, so you are one of the most class attuned contemporary American novelists that I know. 
While it's never said outright in your fiction, your characters often exist in the left-behind geographies and institutions of the great inequity of America, of the American economy. Can you talk about to your, your commitments to the fiction of inequality? Yeah, I, I mean, I think... Um... I mean, I think about class a lot also because of my anxieties as a, when I was really young. Um, and some of that came from my own parents' anxieties. And so um, I think I live in this weird place in that, like, my mother um, grew up in extreme poverty with, with a single mom who, who did not speak English. She was Japanese in the Deep South. And I think uh, in some ways I've internalized some of her deep reservations about wealth and class. And my father came from a wealthier family, but I've also seen the way that larger family, the wealth ebbs and flows and disappears as generations go on. And so when I was a kid, we did not have money. And then my dad got a better job and suddenly we did. And, and so I think about that weirdness of, you know, the, and, and the kind of loveliness of suddenly not worrying about money as much, like just the sheer freedom of it. Um, and so in my work, you know, that's something that, I think I feel like I, I, I want to write about and what I try to do for me is um, I try to avoid socioeconomic stuff. That's just there for like, um, what's the word like grit, like to, to, to create mm -hmm. a definition of a character, because sometimes I think not just in fiction and all things like a low paying job can serve as a shorthand for, for, for like larger issues. And that, that becomes a kind of people mistake that for authenticity. And for me, because of the writers I, I love who work with class, it's really about those intersections where different classes come together, either either by choice or by necessity. And that's when you learn more about class, right? When you see it and you compare it to the differences to your own situation. And so, like, and nothing to see here, when Lillian walks into this world that's completely beyond her, it kind of ruins her at first, right? Mm -hmm. Until she learns how to navigate it and live within it. And, and even someone like Madison, who has incredible wealth and privilege, um, but I'm thinking about the way that she's still a woman in the South, like she's never going to get to be president, even if her husband can. And so right. the way those issues of class bump up against all these other elements, for me, again, like I can't write about an issue unless I write about how it, how it, how it like works in the open air and bumps up against stuff. And you, you mentioned other writers that are thinking about similar things or approaching it in, in perhaps uh, parallel ways. Uh, could you t talk a little bit about some of the writers you admire who are doing work in this area? Yeah, I mean, I'll stick with contemporary, like right now people. And like, for me, one of the big ones, because their book just came out in July, is uh, a writer named Lee Connell who has this novel oh, called yeah. The Party Upstairs. And I think it could not highlight class more clearly um, and do it with such a light touch. It's about this woman who moves back into the apartment building where she grew up with her father, who's the super for that this really high-class building, and they live in the basement. And what's kind of interesting about it is it's about wealth and privilege and the way that it touches up against the complete reliance on the labor of unseen people, like the way the father keeps this map of every single person and what they want from him and expect from him, um, is really great. And, um, the other, it's a fabulous Ruth, book. I, I, I picked so, it up. You, you will love it. And it's really funny. Um, Ruthie Thorpe also, her book came out this summer. It's called the knockout queen. And, oh, yeah. uh, it's set in California and there's a lot of stuff about like real estate and image 
and the shifting nature of class, what's really great about it is that people kind of fall in and out of, of the kind of social status that they're in. And then if I go back, Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad was the one that I think of a lot where there's all of these weird intersections of wealth and privilege. Like there's a moment where one character notices that all the rich kids in this like community are all blonde. Um, <laughs> and then there's a moment where Stephanie moves to Crandale, this gated community. And she notices she's, she's come fr- from very poor circumstances and she notices how all the women who live in this, this place always talk about fate, that things are meant to be. And it drives her, her nuts, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, Egan's work is so much about human connection, all those threads that connect us to other people. And so class is necessary. And then lastly, I know I'm speaking too much, but I, no, I like no. this stuff. And for the South, which is where I live, which has its own, um, I, I don't intersectionality, right? With race. Um, the two writers that I think of a lot who are doing such good work are Mary Miller, who writes about Mississippi in such kind of incredible ways, like, and, and then Stephanie Powell Watts, who writes about North Carolina oh, yeah. um, and African-Americans in the way that wealth um, kind of functions. And so, um, yeah, I, when, when I see a writer that does it so well, I'm like, oh, I got to figure this out. I want to try this too. Do you happen to know um, Jacob White's work? He wrote Being, Being Dead in South Carolina. He's actually a colleague of mine. Um, and I feel like he fits right in that wheelhouse that you're describing with those other authors. Um, and I actually find uh, a great deal of commonality between your short fiction and his. Um, so I'd, I'd absolutely recommend it. I'm writing it down right now. Yeah, he's got a such a, a unique voice, and he as well can can handle um, comedy as it uh, interacts with those kind of bumping up of class differences. So I think you'll like him. Nice. Um, you are a professor, an associate professor at Sewanee, the University of the South. Uh, how does your academic life interact with your writing? And does it provide inspiration or are the two worlds distinct for you? Yeah, I think um, writing for me is, a, is, is really an isolated thing. Like I don't have people that read my work. I don't share it. Um, I like being inside of my head. I mean, that's that's for me. What's wonderful about writing is that it's, it's entirely me. Um, it's calming to get that stuff out of my head and onto the page and work with it. Right. So. Um, because it's calming for me, I don't want other people messing that up, Mm -hmm. but, um, but teaching functions in this really great way for me is that teaching is the way that I keep interrogating what I think about fiction, how it works. And it forces me, or maybe it doesn't force me, but I, I like it. It makes me look for new work and new tricks so that I can talk about it with my students. And I think about this a lot with teaching because I love you know, in the larger world, like this is a real pleasure to talk with you about fiction because in the larger world, a lot of people just don't care. You know, you can't like sit down and talk about a short story you've read. So teaching for me is this great way to have like 15 really interested kind of, you know, great game for anything kids and work with them and talk with them, you know, so it's great. And, um, what I figured out when I teach is that so much of what I do is just, and I think it is for most people, so much of art is just instinctual. You do it because it feels right. And a lot of times you build the scaffolding after you, you know, you build the rules as to why you did it after the fact. And so 
teaching makes me think more about it, like how beyond that instinct, what it is I'm doing. Um, and it's just great with students because as you get older, you start to get a little like um, not bitter, but like you start to wonder if what you're doing is meaningful. Mm-hmm. And I work with these students and they have these like you see these like little glimmers of weirdness or like perfect emotion. And they're just figuring out how to harness it. And it just reminds me of why it's so meaningful and wonderful to do this thing. And that gets me excited to go back into my own work. So. I, I mean, I know I'm, I think I'm a good teacher and I know that I'm helping students, but at the same time, it's incredibly beneficial for me to stay connected to, to this larger world. Whenever I feel like the world is at its nadir, I can go into a classroom and find such hopefulness because of the sort of fresh eyes that my students have on the world. And they do make the things that we do feel feel important and vibrant and imminent. And um, it's such a it is a gift. And and to realize that actually probably everybody should be having these conversations. And for mm-hmm. some reason, we bracket it as these four years in college. And then you sort of leave that behind. And hopefully it has some shadow upon you in your future life. But I it, it just every time I'm having those conversations, I'm thinking we'd be such a better place if we expanded it outside of those bounds. Yeah, I mean, if for nothing else, then just to, to, to kind of keep everything fresh to like keep us Instead of saying, well, this is what I learned in college and this is what I'm holding on to, like to keep it, to let it mutate and build Mm -hmm. um, as you go forward. Now, I have to ask a question, I think, uh, about Suwani. Um, I think it was the case, maybe even still is the case, that professors wear their um, academic regalia to, to class. Is that still the case? That um, is the case. So we, you know, it's modeled on Oxford. So professors wear a, a, a teaching robe and students are in, who are in the order of the gown who've reached a certain GPA wear their robes. And it's a huge part of the identity of the university and one that they're really proud of. Um, for me, I think partly coming from where I come from and, and having grown up in the valley of this same county, right, and now I'm on the mountain, um, I cannot wear it. Uh, I'll carry it sometimes into the class, but um, I think I'm the only, I just, I can't, I don't feel, it feels really weird to me to wear it. And I understand the traditions, but I don't. Um, And we have like, there's kind of like an informal class dress room. I remember one student, she came to me because I wear like, um, just like joggers and sneakers all the time. And she was like, I'm sorry, I came right from working out. And so I didn't change into my class dress. And then she kind of looked up and down at me and she's like, but I think maybe you don't care about that. <laughs> like, no, I don't. It's fine. Like, I just want everyone to be comfortable. And I think some people do feel comfortable in the robe, you know, like it, it feels like they've walked into this kind of formal learning space and I, it's neat to look at people wearing them, but I, I feel really strange about it. And I would think Tennessee in the early months of the beginning of the summer would be too hot wearing it. And it's just, you know, if we not class, but like I'm the only person in my department that doesn't have a Ph.D. I have an MFA. And so my academic robe has um, little bat wings, you know. (laughs) And so like there was just this weirdness as I'd go to like 
the things where I was like, oh man, I'm the only one whose robe looks like this. And so I'd start tucking it into inside <laughs> so you couldn't see the little wings. And now it's like, this is ridiculous. I, I just don't, I, I, I'm okay with it. I think you made the right call. <laughs> I'm going to take a totally different tack with the next question and ask just something that is my own sort of personal angle on your on your fiction and something that uh that kind of goes through my mind often when i'm when i'm reading your work and i hope you won't take offense at it but i find a deep kinship between your work and the films of wes anderson who's a director that i love very much and i'd go as far as to say that your fiction's wes but without the twee or rather, he'd be Kevin Wilson if he had a more pointed, critical eye for class and gender. Is that anything that you see at all um, in your work? Yeah, I don't take offense to that at all. Um, um, I think some people might mean it as an offense, but I don't <laughs> take it that way. I, I love movies. And and when I was a kid, you know, I didn't really know about literature when I was a teenager living in you know Winchester, Tennessee. But I could find movies. You know, we had a video, a weird video store, and Hal Hartley and the Coen Brothers and Whit Stillman and Wes Anderson. Those were big for me, partly to watch these kind of idiosyncratic people build these worlds, right? All the little details um, to develop an identity. And I think about Wes Anderson a lot, and and I think about him more because I'm I haven't watched some of those movies in a long time, but my son now who's 12, we've been watching a lot of them and it's kind of made me rethink the work and probably why I connected to it. And for me, like when I look at his work, if you get beyond like the corduroy suits and like (laughs) all the tiny little dioramas, so much of his work is just how necessary it is to be a part of a family, like to let, to find people who will like let you into the world, their world and protect you and love you. So like, Royal Tannenbaums, I think about that a lot, like how Owen Wilson, you know, who is the author in that book, (laughs) who is an author, is like, I just wanted to be a Tannenbaum so bad, right? To be a family, to be part of something larger than himself. And that's what my characters always want, too. Mm -hmm. And I think about, like, um, the one that my son's favorite of them all is Isle of Dogs. And so much of that is how much we resist, like, family, because we're scared of how we might ruin it. And then a little by little, we we learn what it means and how stronger we are if we're together. And even Rushmore, which which was my favorite movie when I when I first, you know, started watching Anderson was, um, you know, you've got this boy who, whose mom has died, um, who keeps developing all these clashing, like, identities, and he wants to be an artist, but he has no guidance. He makes, like, terrible mistakes. He hurts everyone until he finds people who like let him into their world and help protect him. And for me, like all that tweeness is just dressing to distract from the fact that what Anderson seems most interested in is just that we're infinitely messed up and sad. And so how do we find a way to survive when we are so, so sad? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I hadn't put the the right words to it until I heard your answer just now, but I, I do think it is that kind of hurt and sad but deeply vulnerable person who needs a family but doesn't know it. And so they yeah. fuck everything up. And then at the end of that, they can um, let the people who want to let them in um, uh, sort of draw them in, as you say, to that world where it can be a kind of protective 
entity, even if it's not. And and this is something that your your fiction does so well is to talk about the families that aren't your biological families and how yeah. those are just as necessary and sometimes more so. And that's um, kind of leads me into my question for you about parents in your in your stories, which at least of the biological variety come off pretty poorly in your <laughs> novels and stories. Um, you know, this is especially the case uh, with uh, with nothing to see here, but lots of the the short stories and in perfect little world, um, I guess, family fang, too. Yeah. Um, and the parents are self obsessive to the point of neglecting their children, substance addled, abusive physically and emotionally, or just plain absent. So what's your beef with parents? Yeah. <laughs> um, my editor once, he's, uh, he, for my editor for nothing to see here one time was like, do you think that you make your parents so horrible so that you don't have to contend with the complexities of the fact that they might actually have reasons for why they're so terrible? And I was like, no, I don't think that's it. Um, <laughs> but it was a good point. But I think this, again, just so much of my writing, I think, goes back to just how I was raised, like what it was for me as a child. And I'm still working through that. And, you know, not to get maudlin, but I mean, I would have died if my parents and sister hadn't taken care of me, if they hadn't protected me, if they hadn't gotten me the help when I needed it, which was which was no small thing in rural Tennessee in the 90s when no one was in therapy, no one was on medication I know I would have disappeared from this earth because I tried so many times if they hadn't, you know, held on to me. And so I think I write about bad parents a lot because I'm still so childlike in my emotions and things. And the worst thing I can think of is a parent who doesn't protect you, right? Like, that's what I write about because because um, that's what I can't quite imagine. And And secretly, I think the second thing is I'm a parent now, and I think there's this weirdness of making the parents in my books worse than me, so I don't feel so bad about what I'm doing in my real life. Um, but but if I go deeper, you know, this is again, like, everything starts from, like, this kind of childlike identity that I have. And then if I go a little deeper, um, and, and it's more absurd usually once I dig deeper, I just think um, – but in in my head, the way I think of it is that children didn't ask to be born, right? They came into this world, they're dependent on other people to kind of help them make it and survive and become the person that they're going to become. But parents, uh, they brought someone into the world. Like, we did that, you know? So whatever happens to those people that we love, we created the moment where it began. So we're responsible, and maybe that's a mistake. It's like, to my mind, it's like you're blameless until you have a kid and then you become responsible for what comes next. And I think that's really simplistic, but it's how I view the world, right? Like I helped make my boys and if they get hurt, whatever the context, I made that possible. So I think I write about that anxiety in my work a lot, you know, trying to figure that out. And the the thing for me anyway is you become a parent and you you realize that you're just going to make grave errors on the regular and that you will understand like what that means to someone who is just so new to the world and how that you want to try and 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 mitigate those when you can um and it actually is fiction for me that a lot of times helps me deal with the fact that it's that it 
it is okay to make errors as long as that you understand your general role to be, as you said, a kind of protector and, and nurturer. And so I'm always grateful to, to novels and stories that kind of help me grapple with that. Me too. And I mean, I think even writing nothing to see here helped me like, you know, there's all these parents who are bad in the book. And part of it is because they, they just, um, when their kid needs them most, they don't know how to deal with it and they walk away. And the one thing Lillian proves is like, it's not like Lillian necessarily fixes anything. It's just that, um, what you have to prove to your children is that when pain comes and it always will, it's that you'll be there. You'll sit right next to them and catch on fire and that you'll be there each time that happens. And that's all you can really do. Like you can't prevent the pain. You just have to show them that you'll be there next to them. And, and that's what I think that's kind of all I really want, you know, is just some, some sort of solidarity. Lillian has staying power. And that right. so makes her the, the the great parent of the book, even though she's a you know a, a fuck up in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she, but she will stay even when things are totally on fire, and that's right. that's absolutely what I love about her. I've been um, I've been asking the the folks I've been interviewing on the podcast to think a little bit about um, either a genre of literature, or a group of texts that they think is underappreciated. It could be a, a subgenre, a single author, a group of novels or stories that everyone needs to get their hands on, but are not for whatever reason. Would you be willing to help put the listeners to the podcast on to a kind of new direction with their summer reading? Sure. Yeah, I, I love this idea and I love the suggestions. And, and so one of the things that I was thinking about, and I think it matches up a little in some ways with the world that we're living in right now. Like, like for me, um, uh, during this pandemic, like my children are with me 24 seven and like they're my world and um, so reading has become the thing that I do so much for pleasure has become difficult to find time for. And so um, I thought a lot about when I wrote Nothing to See Here, I knew I wanted to write a short novel. I wanted something that took place over a really compressed amount of time. Um, I, again, compression. I wanted compression because if you get compression, then things become combustible, right? So, mm -hmm. so when I knew I wanted to do that, I started reading all these kind of novels that clock in at like less than 250 pages. Like a lot of them are under 200. Like a book you can read in a day, right? Which is always like a really thrilling experience for yeah, me. And so... Is. What was weird was when I actually started to think about my three favorite novels are We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson, uh, A Member of the Wedding by Carson McCullers, and True Grit by Charles Portis. And all of those books are under 200. So it was weird that that hadn't clicked in my brain before, that that's maybe what I just like. Mm -hmm. So um, the recommendations, I've got a couple, but like, you know, we talk so much about like the great American novel, and you see these books that have all this heft and weight, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I like those books, too. But what I'm interested in is like a tiny book that can have the emotional resonance of 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 a huge novel is really wonderful to me. And and so I've got a couple, if that's OK, and I'll just yeah, mention them. And so the first one, which is the the book that I, I just I kind of heard about it. But um, when I finally read it, it just just opened me up so much. And it's Treasure Island with three exclamation points by Sarah Levine. 
um, it, it earns all three of those exclamation points. <laughs> like I can't overstate how much I love uh, this book. Like um, it's about a young woman who narrates it, who is just inspired by um, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, and she decides to kind of live her life by the principles of the book. <laughs> Wow. Which turns out to be like a spectacularly terrible idea, and so <laughs> imagine what he that. <laughs> her just disrupt the lives of every person that she comes into contact with, and it's really funny, and yet there's really something honest and revelatory about how hard it is to find your place in the world. Like how how what do we do once we hurt the people we love? I, I just I can't get over it, and then. The other two that I'll mention are the one is Bad Marie by Marcy Dermansky. Um, I love all of Dermansky's work. I think she's just like just unbelievable. Um, I don't know so her. funny and yet so sharp. And and a lot of nothing to see here is like Bad Marie in some ways. Like there's an aimless woman who is prone to ruining things who becomes a nanny for an old friend. But Bad Marie is just so much more wicked, so much more in- intense. Um, like Marie, for example, the main character, is fresh out of jail. Um, and, and I won't ruin the plot at all, but it ventures into such wild places. Like It just keeps building the chaos. And what's really cool about Dermansky is like she just shifts between comedy and tragedy so easily. Like um, A character like Marie could be a caricature, but she, she never lets that happen. And then the last one, it's really short, um, is uh, Katie Kitamura's uh, The Long Shot. Um, and to my mind, this is this is my favorite sports novel that I've ever read. Huh. Um, it, 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 I remember I was listening to it on audiobook on a car ride to Arkansas with my son, and I just I, I was completely unprepared for how brilliant it was. Um, and I've since reread it a couple of times, and. Uh, it follows this um, mixed martial arts fighter, Cal, and he and his trainer, the one guy that he's with, Riley, they head to Tijuana for a match against basically a, an unbeatable fighter. Like You cannot imagine how many times it's mentioned that this guy cannot lose. And it's just devastating. Like The language is so precise and so perfect. And it takes place over the course of like two days. Um, and I've, And it's so hard, I think, you know, like to write about physicality and the, the the sections about fighting are as good as anything I've ever read on the subject, any nonfiction, anything. But what's so brilliant is the way Kitamura writes about, and I think about this a lot, but it's such a short book, but she reckons entirely with the limitations of our life. Like, like our bodies will fail us. Like um, that, that we ultimately always will fail. Right. And, so how do we make peace with that? And what are the lines of human connection that make those losses um, bearable, right? It's just a, just kind of a breathtaking, uh, unsparing novel that I think about a lot. And so like all of these novels, you know, are books that I read in one sitting, really. Like, um, And there's just, like I said, something thrilling about living entirely in a book to the exclusion of everything else. Like you, you don't put it down, you're in it and how much more I feel connected to those characters because it's such a brief moment that I'm with them. I, what I love about that list is that they are all almost entirely unfamiliar to me. So I'm so excited to be able to, to dip into those. And I do love the immersive experience of a, a single day reading a novel. 
it does it it sort of brings on this kind of trance-like imminence to the fiction where you get something more like what you get from sitting down with a movie and having the entirety of a narrative space encompass you for almost as though you're living it real time and yeah. and I'm I'm very excited about those recommendations okay since we're uh, you know since I'm talking a little bit about movies uh what was the experience like of having the family fang turned into a movie with the inimitable Nicole Kidman in a starring role? It was, there was not a single thing bad about it. It was just like, um, uh, it was unreal, you know, like, um, and it's pure luck. Like Nicole Kidman, who lives in, in Tennessee near Nashville was listening to NPR, Nashville public radio. And they were like, there's a new book by, Tennessee author Kevin Wilson. She's like, oh, I'll read that. And it's all because of that. She liked it. And oh, her my goodness. A producing partner contacted me. And then I drove up to Nashville to meet with Nicole Kidman. And who is, you know, and that's the thing is like, I, it, Nicole Kidman is one of my favorite actors of all time. Like, um, and like, uh, one of the reasons is because what I love is how she'll do big blockbuster movies, but also like just the weirdest movies like birth, you know, um, mm. I just think she's like kind of an actress who's unafraid of anything. And so what was wild was hearing her talk about the book and just how insightful she was, like how much she got it. And she's, she just said, you know, um, I'm going to do everything I can to get this made. And, and I was like, you can have it for free. I don't, I would give you anything. And so I wasn't expecting it to move forward and every step of the way, it seemed like it might not happen. And then they would find the screenwriter. And then they found a director, Jason Bateman. And then they got the funding. And so it just felt like this real gift, like for me, like to watch people take this thing that I'd spent so much of my time all by myself working on and build it up into this new thing was really cool. I, I have no complaints at all. I had no idea it was uh, Nicole Kidman that that helped to acquire it. That's pretty. That's pretty amazing. It would be yeah, enough. yeah. It was Blossom Productions at the time. They'd done I think Rabbit Hole was their one movie, and and she was like, "I'll do what I can to get it made," and that was all I needed. You know, I didn't. I, I knew how hard it was because I have friends that have sold options. So I was like, I know it might not happen, but if it's not going to happen. I'd rather it not happen with Nicole Kidman. Yeah, know? no kidding. The non-movie with Nicole Kidman, I think, be exactly. beats a lot of actually existing movies. <laughs> um, so I want to just close with uh, a question that I that I ask everybody because it's you know it's always a delight. But I want to know what you're reading now, and whether you'd be willing to share anything about future writing projects of your own. Sure. I mean, so what I'm reading now are mostly books for blurbs, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> they're all books that aren't out yet. Um, but what I kind of do sometimes, though, is that when I blurb a book, like I read it and I read it very closely, but then it disappears until it comes out. And so usually when it comes out, I like to reread them, like actually read it as, as a reader, you know, for mm. fun. And so the book that I'm reading right now, again, is... Um, uh, must I go? Uh, Yi Yun Lee. So I read it as a bourbon. Uh, now I'm reading it again. And she's Yi Yun Lee is one of my favorite writers of all time. Like the way that she writes about grief, like I think I think her work for me is like a map for how to keep living, right? Like it wow. and it actually 
Must I Go is a woman, an old woman kind of reckoning with her past and trying to figure out what comes next. And, and, and inevitably what comes next is death. And it's one of the few novels that I've read where I was like, I hate saying this, it sounds weird, but it made me less afraid about whatever comes next. Um, it's just her, her genius and generosity of spirit is like kind of unmatched. So going back into that book, knowing how it goes is just kind of thrilling. That's an extraordinary, um, <laughs> extraordinary yeah. uh, view of a, of a book. I, I must, I have to read it. Yeah, I think anytime somebody says me a, a book made me less afraid to die, I'll read that book. You yeah. know? <laughs> I'm, I'm going for that. Um, and then what I'm working on is um, another short novel, and it's um, it's a young it's a it's a book split in two. So the first part of the book is set in 1996, and it's a teenage girl, and it takes place over one summer. And uh, the second half is her reckoning with that summer and looking back on it and trying to kind of figure it out. But it all stems from um, when I was in college, my freshman year, uh, the summer of my freshman year, I lived off campus in an apartment with this guy um, who was uh, about to go to L.A. to be an actor. He was about four or five years older than me, and he was a janitor for the summer. And he was just one of the first people I'd ever met. Um, who talked about art as like a thing that could actually be made by regular people. And we would make all these little movies. He had all this editing equipment and I just kind of fell in love with him. And at one point, my job that summer was to, um, to edit, uh, to upload and make PDFs and HTML of the Vanderbilt medical centers, um, policy and procedures manual, which was like 600 pages. And I was typing it by hand in HTML Oh God. And uh, I got so bored that I would just add lines, just make stuff up and just hide it in the, in the manual, like weird lines, like apocalyptic lines. And my friend one time was like, you should use this line. And the line was, um, the edge is a shanty town filled with gold seekers. We are fugitives and the law is skinny with hunger for us. And so I put it in the manual and because my mind loops, because I have like ticks, um, I think I've said that line every day of my life since then, maybe two or three times a day. Like it's just a thing I say, edge of the shantytown, edge of the shantytown. And I, I actually put it in the family fang uh, a brief moment and I just wanted it back. And so the whole book is about that line, which will interest no one but me. But uh, I just want to write about how someone becomes an artist and how obsession is a part of it. So I'm just, going to say that line over and over again and hope a book comes out of it. Well, I guarantee you um, that many, many people will be anticipating this book and will find that line to be uh, a driving passion of their of their own. And I'm, I can't wait for it. Kevin Wilson, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It was it was truly a delight to have this opportunity. Oh, yeah, it made me so happy to talk. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Welcome back to Burned by Books. One of the most fun things that I've gotten to do this summer is to put out a call for requests for recommendations. 
to the people who've been kind enough to listen to this very new podcast venture. The responses that I got were illuminating, both in that they showed me what a vast range of tastes and interests you have, and also in the way that I've been introduced to books that I haven't heard of, authors that are new to me, genres and subgenres that I hadn't realized I was excited to read, but now am. And so I'm setting out this episode to address three categories of recommendations that I set out in the website's social media in which you were so kind to respond to. The first was just straight recommendation requests, people recommending types of books, plots, contents of books, things that they like to read in general. So I've attempted to take up your call for recommendations and pairings of books and to uh, address as many of the people who were kind enough to post on the Instagram site for the podcast. Film Fatal 1998 asks for something in the genre of Southern Gothic. I'm going to go to a favorite of the new Gothic tradition, Jennifer Egan's The Keep. It isn't Southern, but it's arch-Gothic, drawing from traditions as disparate as Walpole's The Castle of Otranto and Donna Tartt's The Little Friend. The restoration of a medieval castle in Eastern Europe, a childhood trauma relived, and a prisoner who, cannot tie, who can tie the stories of past and present together. It isn't Egan's most read novel by a long shot, but it belongs in her best of lineup, as far as I'm concerned. My second recommendation is on my bedside table to be read. Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia takes Southern Gothic quite a bit further south into Mexico City. Set in a glamorous and decaying mansion in the 1950s, and I'm excited especially for the appropriation and evisceration of the gothic tropes. There is amateur sleuthing, couture fashion, and deadly ancestral secrets. How could I not love it? Akasha is Akasha writes that she wants political, mind-bending, weird, dark fiction, with the caveat that this isn't her normal MO for summer reading. I hear you. We have such different reading needs right now, and I've got two for you from what I'd call the Orwellian surveillance state lineage. The first is super recent, a 2020 release from a favorite author of mine, Gish Jin, called The Resisters. It's a fantastic mashup of a political thriller and, wait for it, a baseball novel where society has been stratified into the fair-skinned netted who have choice jobs and cultural capital and the surplus who, you guessed it, don't. Eleanor, baby to a surplus family, turns out to be the baseball prodigy this surveillance society needs to beat out Chin Russia, a future corporatist mashup of two recognizable world powers. The baseball side plot seemed to me on first reading the flyleaf as something that would turn me off. But indeed, 
This was such a wonderful and compelling novel and spoke to so many issues of our own moment in terms of privacy and surveillance that I find it to be a lasting novel and one that fits nicely into Gish Jen's tradition of experimentation and sharp takes on American cultural life. The second is a 2017 gem by Nick Hardaway, who sometimes gets typecast as a genre writer. His Orwell reboot, Nomen, G-N-O-M-O-N, has been compared to the films The Matrix and Inception, but I find it very much in the Philip K. Dick vein, with a minority report like interest in how the world becomes both more and more visible via constant surveillance and yet hidden and shadowed by the by the powers that be working to pull strings behind the scenes it is creepy and disarmingly snowden-esque there's a detective investigating a state murder during an interrogation in a future where every action and event is recorded so as to achieve perfect transparency of the citizenry. Gardner Adventures has requested a sci-fi or fantasy recommendation. I'm going to recommend the book I just finished two days ago, the first full-length novel in a series of mostly shorter sci-fi novelettes loosely gathered under the umbrella of the Murderbot series. The murder bot in question is a sentient security android that has separated himself from the governing brain that would otherwise focus his attentions entirely around the security concerns of a rapacious intergalactic corporation. Instead, Murderbot spends his time watching thousands of hours of human TV and along the way deconstructs the fallibility of human behavior and emotion with an unblinking eye and a sharp-witted, sarcastic tongue. There's all kinds of political intrigue. It is clearly a series that wants to contend with how much of our freedoms we've handed over to corporations and lots of space hijinks. But I would challenge you to have more fun with a sci-fi novel. Not Ninka, asked for a YA novel or something light and relaxing. And I'm going to blend this wreck with Ellen Hartman's desire for a rom-com or a meaty family saga. I don't have a YA novel to recommend, not because I don't like the genre, but only because I haven't read one this summer and don't have one sharp in mind. But I think I've got a great choice that bridges light and relaxing with comedic family saga. Emma Straub, who might be the queen of the literary fiction summer read, to be distinguished from the trashy but wonderful beach read genre, has a brand new novel that I find to be her best work so far. All Adults Here comes with the caveat that it isn't light in the sense of lacking in substance or difficult issues. However, Emma Straub writes a relaxing family implosion like none other. This time, she's set us in a small, affluent, out-of-the-city enclave of Clapham, New York, where the matriarch of the family in question has taken in the middle son's teenage daughter after an unnamed behavioral problem at her middle school. Astrid Strick, 
who is aptly named and both astringent and strict, has seen a neighbor nemesis killed by a school bus, turning her narrow vision of the world upside down. The other adult children are similarly in their own crises of faith in the directions they've taken with their lives. Like her previous books, there is a tenderness and compassion underlying even the most wounding infractions in the family's bad behavior. And it means that we root for nearly every character to find some self-awareness. A barometer for whether or not you will enjoy this novel is the level of derision that you have for Amazon reviews that pan it for featuring a late-in-life coming out of a lesbian character. Let's just say my level of derision was high. I asked folks to drop me a favorite book that they might like a pairing for, and I got lots of wonderful responses. Julia Clare Yoga anticipated Kevin Wilson's recommendation of one of his all-time favorite short novels, with her pick of We Have Always Lived in the Castle. I'm embarrassed to say I haven't read this classic, but I've already put in an order for it. I do, however, have two brilliant and devastating short novels to recommend. The first, The Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss, contends with the ethno-nationalism of our time by seeding the story in an Iron Age reenactment camp, where a historian and a low-key white nationalist attempt to live the lives of early Britons with violent and frightening results. It is a warning to Europe and the United States about whitewashing history and the dangers of the grievance politics of white men. The second is, if possible, bleaker, but no less absorbing. It's barely a novel clocking in at a mere 140 pages, but it lasts like a terrible, beautiful nightmare. The End We Start From by Megan Hunter is a story of the end, the waning days of a world disrupted by climate apocalypse, and of a beginning, the early days of discovery of a newborn child. The protagonist has just given birth to her child as she must flee a submerged London to look for livable territories. Rarely has a book so terrifying been written so beautifully about the pain and tenderness of motherhood. Diane Johns loved a burned-by-books favorite, Alexandra Chang's Days of Distraction, and so I'm going to pitch a pairing that Alexandra herself suggested on the podcast. She recommended Kevin Gyun's New Waves as a novel with overlapping themes and interests to Days of Distraction. While I've only had a chance to dip in a little bit, I'm excited by what I've read so far. It's the story of two disgruntled programmers, both one of a handful of minorities to work at a tech company, that decide to steal the company's user database. There is a catastrophic and unexpected trauma that causes one friend to question everything he imagined to be true about his own privilege and place in society. So far, it's funny and searingly so on issues of racism in America. It's also yet another interesting look into the tech world that has come to so dominate the ways in which we communicate and forge relationships across boundaries. 
Maddie Sting, 97, raved about Michelle Obama's becoming. Surely one of the best memoirs of the decade. And I'm not even going to attempt an analog to her sine qua non voice and story. If you haven't read it, I recommend so much that you listen to Michelle read it on audiobook. However, Maddie Sting, 97, also loved City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert, a book I haven't read but know of. The novel's themes of the expectations leveled at young women in their crucial moments of becoming remind me of one of my favorite books of the spring, Writers and Lovers by Lily King, a book that came up as a favorite of one of our other listeners as well. While Gilbert's narrative is told retrospectively and Writers and Lovers is told from the present, Gilbert has an older woman looking back at her younger self, kicked out of Vassar and returning to a glamorous New York City theater crowd of the 1940s. The narrative of sexual awakening, promise, and disappointment, the exploration of art as a medium of self-expression, and a life of exploding normative demands on women's lives ties the two closely enough together to make for a hopefully good pairing. Groove Cannon waded in with Otessa Moshfe's short story collection. I'll make this embarrassing admission that I am among a small minority that doesn't like Moshfe's work. Don't hate me. I'll agree with you that I'm likely to be proven wrong by the arc of literary history. But rather than attempting a proper pairing, I recommend to you my favorite short story collection of the previous decade, The Alphabet of Birds, by the South African S.J. Nodier, a collection that is both a global wanderer and a rooted examination of South Africa's era of massive demographic, cultural, and political change. It deals with desire in all of its forms and fashions, music and dance, art and the impossibility of translation and language to capture our differences, and it is just so exquisitely written. Nadier wrote these first in Afrikaans and then translated them himself into English, and the collection won the South African Literary Award for a first book. It is published in the U.S. and U.K. by And Other Stories, and it shouldn't be missed. Finally, a number of you said you wanted something exciting and absorbing. For me, the absorbing adventure catastrophe novel of the summer has been Amity Gage's Sea Wife, the story of a family sailing trip around the world gone horribly awry. But it is also a sharp examination of how marriage assumes stasis of its participants and the layered expectations that children and domesticity can clamp down on the desires and needs of the married. Think claustrophobic cabin spaces in a violent storm mixed with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Many of you were kind enough to mention the books you are anticipating being published in the coming months, and I will put those on the website, burnedbybooks.com, where you can find all the books that have been recommended by our interviewees and listeners to the show over these past five episodes. You can also ask me for a recommendation at any time at the About page on the site. Thank you so much. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon. 
This has been Burned by Books. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.